0: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment.
1: Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On July 24, 2000, the partially skeletonized remains of an unknown male were discovered floating in the Atlantic Ocean. This was nowhere close to land, in fact, it was 27 nautical miles off the U.S. coast, off Jonesport, Maine, near the Grand Manon Banks. The boat that found the dead man was a fishing vessel, and they brought the remains on board and stowed him until they returned to shore. The man was taken to the main office of the chief medical examiner for an autopsy. The man was a white male, likely in his 60s, somewhere around 6 feet tall, with a slender build weighing between 170 and 190 pounds. He had remnants of gray hair and an unusual dental appliance, a removable Nesbit partial denture on teeth 2, 3, and 4, with number 3 missing. The pathologist could not determine the cause of death, as the man had been dead for up to two months and was partially skeletonized. The pathologist's report says the man exhibited advanced decay with some skeletonization due to the marine depredation. Sorry to be graphic, but that means fish and crabs had been nibbling at him. But the pathologist was able to detect significant medical issues suffered by the man, including cardiac hypertrophy, coronary atherosclerosis, moderate emphysema, and nephrosclerosis. He was thought to possibly be a pipe smoker, although it's unclear to me whether this was because of residue on his teeth or in his esophagus, stains on his fingers, or what. The man was clothed in a blue, long-sleeved collared knit shirt, a rear-guard brand pullover with three buttons in front size XL, a Cheriskin brand white V-neck t-shirt size XL, made in Mexico, and two pairs of white tube socks. A white metal Casio digital watch still adorned his left wrist. I asked the main office of the medical examiner whether the watch was still working, but the records don't reflect whether it was operating or not. Shoes and pants were not found. The man found in the water had no identification on him, and the medical examiner had no way of determining who he was. His facial features were unrecognizable due to the animal predation I mentioned. Review of missing persons report in the area failed to turn up any leads. The medical examiner was able to obtain the man's fingerprints though and ran them through the usual databases, including the FBI's National Fingerprint Collection, with no success. The medical examiner also obtained and retained a sample of the man's DNA to conduct testing should a possible identification occur and uploaded it to CODIS's Unidentified Human Remains DNA database. No hits were generated there. His description was also entered into NamUs and NCIC. He became known locally as jones Doe. After everything was done that could be done to try to identify jones Bordeaux and return him to his family, he was cremated and buried in an unmarked grave in Graceland Memorial Park in Auburn. His DNA card was kept on file for future identification purposes. The Office of the Chief Medical Examiner revisited the case over the years but never made any headway. In 2005, a forensic artist named Wesley Neville worked with the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner to create a facial reconstruction of jones Porteau, based on his autopsy photos. Publicizing this rendering didn't produce any leads. In 2019, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner contracted with Parabon Nenolaps to conduct phenotyping to see if they could determine jones Porteau's ancestry. Parabon's assessment revealed that the man had hazel or green eyes, brown hair, a light complexion, and some freckling. He was also of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. Parabon did not conduct any forensic genealogy work on this case. The SNP profile that they worked with to conduct the phenotyping was provided to the DNA Doe Project in hopes that forensic genealogy could determine who the man was. But the genealogy trail didn't really generate any viable leads because of the low-level matches in GEDmatch and FTDNA, the two open-source databases accessible by the DNA Doe project team. I was requested to cover this case, even though it's not a typical forensic genealogy identification. It's very interesting to me that the process failed to yield results, even though Jones-Bordeaux had scores of centimorgan matches in the databases. I learned this was largely because of his Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. People with this ancestry often exhibit a high degree of pedigree collapse, which is what happened here. This means that because their ancestors intermarried within a small pool of similar people, they share many common DNA markers, making singling any of them out extremely complicated. And whereas in non-endogamous situations, matches in the 75 centimorgan range can be quite informative, in cases like this one, they're essentially a dime a dozen and often don't point in any one direction. From what I understand, jones Doe had something like 185 matches in the 40 to 80 centimorgan range and thousands of smaller matches, putting him on over 70 family trees because of commingled DNA. From speaking with a genealogist who's done a lot of work within the Jewish and Ashkenazi Jew populations, shout out to Sharon, I gathered that in this subset of people, matches of 40 to 80 centimorgans are virtually meaningless. In March of 2021, a new match was revealed of 175 centimorgans. But because of the endogamous nature of jones doe's heritage, this relatively robust match still did not yield results.
0: The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. In March of
1: 2022, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner met with the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services, Deceased Persons Identification Services Division, regarding updated identification technologies available through the FBI. Back in 2000, when he was found, jones Doe's fingerprints had been run through the FBI's system to no avail. But now, the FBI had access to improved identification technology and more extensive databases, and the federal agency agreed to give it a try. The Office of the Chief Medical Examiner submitted jones Doe's fingerprints to DPI services in May 2022, and they got a hit. On January 11, 2023, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner announced that they had identified Jones Porto, 22 years after he was found. The fingerprint, matched by the FBI, belonged to a man named Philip Kahn. Once the FBI provided the name Philip Kahn, the investigators were able to trace him to a missing persons report filed in Las Vegas in 2000. Dental records confirmed the match. Philip Kahn was an 84-year-old retired taxi driver who had a wife and adult stepchildren. One day in early July 2000, he simply left the home he shared with his wife, boarded a plane, and flew to New York City. No one has any idea how he ended up floating in the water off the main coast. But that's far from the only mystery. Philip Kahn was not Jones Porto's real name. No one knows for sure who he really was. By the time Philip was identified, his remaining family members consisted of one stepdaughter from his late-in-life marriage. This is a woman named Judy Drago. Philip was married to her mother, Jean Oliver Kahn. Judy spoke to reporter Jillian Graham of the Portland Press-Herald, who had the following report, quote, Philip Kahn didn't tell anyone where he was going in July 2000 when he walked out of his Las Vegas home, hitched a ride to the airport, and boarded a flight. Just like that, the retired 84-year-old cab driver was gone without a trace. For nearly 23 years, his family wondered what happened to the friendly man who enjoyed dancing with his wife and two-for-one meals at the casinos. They came to terms with the likelihood that he wasn't coming back. Years later, when he would have been approaching 100, they accepted that he had probably died. What they didn't know was that within a month of his disappearance and 3,000 miles away, A body was pulled from the Atlantic Ocean, 27 miles off the coast of Maine, end quote. Judy Drago was the one who had reported Philip missing on behalf of her mother, Philip's wife, Jean. He had simply vanished from their Nevada home on July 9, 2000, after asking a neighbor to drive him to the airport around 7 p.m. The family discovered after he left that he'd liquidated his assets, signed a power of attorney over to his wife, and had sent a letter and some money to his sister. Jean, his wife, was very upset, and Judy reported Philip's disappearance to the Las Vegas Metro PD 12 days later. More from the Press-Herald, quote, Khan loved warm weather and lived for a time in Florida before settling in Las Vegas, where he worked as a cab driver. He stood nearly 6 feet 6 inches tall, and the other cab drivers called him Stretch. He never had children of his own. In his 60s, Khan met Jean Oliver, a preschool teacher who had earned her college degree in her 50s. Their romance started at the neighborhood pool, where they each liked to spend time. They had both lost spouses and were drawn to each other, Diego said. They were the perfect match, she said. They were both lonely and they found each other. They lived in the Pleasant Valley mobile home community and enjoyed going on cruises and out to dinner. They took dance lessons and went to big band dance nights at the local casinos. For fun and to earn a bit of extra money, they appeared as extras in movies filmed in Las Vegas, including Rain Man in 1988. As stars Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise walk off an escalator, Kahn and his wife step on the other side to go up. Kahn enjoyed being around family and friends Drago remembers and was always laughing, always talking. As he aged, Kahn grappled with health problems, including emphysema, cardiac hypertrophy, and nephrosclerosis. but his family did not believe he had signs of dementia or was suicidal. He was hesitant to go in for surgery for one of his health conditions and instead decided to go out of state for holistic treatment, but they didn't know exactly where. He said he would call when he got there, but he never did, Jago said. He was such a mild-mannered guy, to see him disappear was confusing. When Philip left, he gave the family the impression he was going to Florida, possibly Coral Gables, to seek holistic treatment for his physical ailments because he didn't want surgery. No one in his family knew at the time that he had gone to New York. He had charged a ticket, $162, on a new credit card his wife didn't have access to. Detectives finally traced his flight to New York, but after that, they had no idea where he'd gone. Judy was shocked to learn that he'd been found in the waters off Maine. He had no ties to that area that she was aware of. She said to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, quote, We have more questions than answers. We have no idea how he got to Maine. Jean Kahn died in 2007, never knowing what became of her husband. Her daughter Judy, who is now 81, said that her mom was sometimes angry that Philip had just left, but she was more resigned than mad and went on with her life. So who was Philip Kahn? Well, we know his last name was not Kahn, but no one knows what it really was. Judy recalled that he had two brothers and one sister, and his birth name was not Philip Kahn, but something like Philip Ehrlichman or Ehrlich. She didn't know for certain, and she certainly had no idea of any spelling. Philip was originally from New York, and he had left his parents' home during the Depression to seek his fortune on the railways. He told Judy and her mom that he had changed his name to Khan because he didn't want to shame his family because he had no money to his name. The two spoke with his sister after he disappeared, the one to whom he had sent a letter and some money. But she was married, and they had no idea what her maiden name was. She has since passed away, so they had no way to find out. Philip's other two siblings, both males, predeceased him, and Jean never knew their last names. Genealogists working on his case have been able to find Philip Kahn in World War II draft cards and the 1950 census records. He registered for the draft on October 16, 1940 in Miami Beach, Florida. He listed himself as a white male, roughly six foot four, 170 pounds, with brown eyes, brown hair and a light brown complexion. He listed his employer as the Miami Herald. His roommate, a friend with the initials SK, was listed as his next of kin. Meanwhile, the 1950 census reflects that Philip was 34 years old, living in Miami, working as a taxi driver and renting a room in a boarding house. They believe his real date of birth may be October 6, 1915, and that he was born in Manhattan, but they don't know his actual surname. Many immigrant families, which Ashkenazi Jews often were years ago, changed their names when they entered the country, selecting more anglicized versions of their typically more ethnic-sounding surnames. This trend complicates the genealogical histories of families, since it's difficult to definitively trace them back farther than the new surnames. So it's possible that even if we knew Philip Kahn's birth name, it wouldn't necessarily lead to his ancestral roots. Nonetheless, many people who are invested in his case would like to learn Philip's real name in order to connect him to his deceased siblings and his parents and recognize him as the person he really was. For now, Judy Drago has decided to allow Philip to remain interred in Maine. We'll let him rest in peace, she said. The Maine Office of the Medical Examiner has closed this case. Their death investigation is complete. But if anyone listening knows who Philip Kahn really is, please let me know. I am in contact with a genealogist and some others who would like to connect him with his birth family. Since I recorded the part of this episode you just heard, I was contacted with an update by the genealogist who's working on trying to determine Phil's birth name. He managed to locate the 1983 Nevada marriage license documenting the marriage between Phil Kahn and his second wife, Jean. The marriage license reflects that Phil was widowed in his first marriage. It also contains some information which was self-reported by Phil but is nonetheless informative. His father is listed as Max Kahn, born in Poland, and his mother as Bessie Schwartz, born in Russia. So that would seem to indicate that Phil's real surname was indeed Khan, but not so fast. A seasoned family searcher on Reddit's genealogy subreddit, whom I contacted and received permission to mention, got creative, figuring that Phil probably knew his mother's maiden name and listed it correctly on his marriage license. This searcher looked for marriages between a Bessie Schwartz and a man named Max, with any surname, in New York in the 1900s. The searcher found a couple named Bessie Schwartz and Max Ehrlich. Bessie was born in Russia and Max in Poland. The couple had a son named Nathan Ehrlich, who was born on October 6, 1915, the date that Phil Kahn is believed to have been born. Max and Bessie also had a son named Harry Ehrlich and a daughter named Rose. There's no record of a third brother. Remember, Judy believed that Phil had two brothers and a sister. Nevertheless, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that Phil Kahn is Nathan Ehrlich. One, Phil's 1940 Florida draft card was sent to a draft board in Brooklyn, New York, the same place where Bessie and Max lived and where Nathan was from. Two, if you recall, I said that Phil spent many years as a cab driver, and in 1950, he was working as a cabbie in Miami Beach. Well, Nathan's brother Harry Ehrlich also listed his industry as cab driver, and he, too, was in Florida in 1950. Were the brothers together? And if so, why was Nathan using the name Phil Kahn? 3. No couples with the names Max and Bessie in New York in the relevant time period the 1920s and 30s, had a son named Phil. 4. Nathan Ehrlich has no proof of life after 1930. Per My Family searcher Contact, the last record available online in which Nathan Ehrlich appears is the 1930 census, which reflects that he was living with his parents, Max and Bessie Ehrlich, a brother Harry, and a sister Rose. After that, Nathan is M.I.A. There is no draft registration for Nathan, which is telling since all young men were required to register. And yet, there is no death record for Nathan ever. He just disappeared. Finally, Phil Kahn's name started to appear in public documents in 1940. That's when the name first appeared on his 1940 World War II draft card. The searcher believes that Phil Kahn is really Nathan Ehrlich. We can only presume that he listed his father as Max Kahn on his marriage license, because he wanted to avoid questions about his surname. But we'll never know. If the Reddit family searcher is correct, Phil Nathan may have living relatives. His parents, Max and Bessie, are deceased. His siblings, Rose and Harry, are both deceased as well. But both of them had children, whom I'm not naming, but perhaps they might recall their uncle Nathan or an uncle who went by Phil. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider Subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider Subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Bettencourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Bettencourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.